Hey, this is Nikki McCrary, lead pastor at Eastern Heights Baptist Church in Statesboro, Georgia, where we exist to be a life-changing church. So as you listen, I pray that you will be encouraged in your walk with Christ and that your life will be forever changed as you grow in your relationship with Him. Well, good morning, Eastern Heights family. Good to see all of you this morning. I hope you are excited to be here because I'm excited to be here this morning because I get to talk about what I've devoted my whole life to, and that is religion. That's what we're talking about today. You can be finding Mark chapter 2. We'll get there in just a minute. We had a great men's ministry meeting uh, yesterday, a time of planning, just thinking about what we want to get uh, going now that we're trying to restart our men's ministry again. And so uh, be looking for things to come in the near future about those kind of things. I also want to let you know if you are considering uh, joining our church and becoming a member of Eastern Heights, we have our next membership class called Discover. It takes place on Sunday, September the 10th at 5 o'clock. We have child care up through the fifth grade. It's about an hour-long class where you get to hear more about our church, our mission, our ministry, why we do what we do, and how that you can be a part of that in serving the Lord through our church. Well, I'm glad that you're joining us for this series that we're calling What's Up With That? Because I think that we all question God more than we would actually like to admit to, right? And not so much is God real, but is he right? Have you ever had someone that would give you a lecture about right and wrong and you're sitting there thinking, well, I'm not even sure you're qualified to be doing that? Well, just imagine questioning Jesus about the topic of religion, because that's what we're going to explore today. And you need to know right off the bat that Jesus was a very, very religious man. And that's important for us to know because we have a culture today that goes around with this saying that you can be spiritual, but not religious. You ever heard that? And if you walk daily with Jesus, you would never say that about him because he was a very deeply religious man. And so I think when people use that phrase today, uh, they're, maybe they're defining you know, religion as a lifeless ritual or maybe uh, they've been wounded by a bad religion and they're turned off by hypocritical religion, which by the way, Jesus was too with that kind of religion. But you know what? Jesus didn't abandon religion and neither should we. And you say, well, I, I'm going to be spiritual but not religious. I mean, what does that even mean? I think what it means is you're trying to create a designer faith for yourself that means that you don't have to submit to any kind of absolute moral truths out there and you don't have to submit yourself to what the Bible says and, and you don't have to submit yourself to other people around you. And the problem with that, though, is religion isn't designed, it's received. Paul came along and says, I pass on to you what I Received And for thousands of years, the way that we have encountered God is through the proper practice of religion, through submission to the sacred scriptures, to observance of the sacraments, to meeting together in person and being accountable to a broader community of faith. That's how people encounter the presence of God. And you know what, folks? That hasn't changed. And that's why Jesus lived like he did. He submitted to the sacred scriptures. He practiced the observances and the rituals of his faith. He regularly attended the synagogue, practicing his faith in a faith community, not alone somewhere secluded. Now, he did that sometimes too, but that was a whole different thing, right? Jesus was a deeply religious man. And so he was quick to confront those that wanted to take a good thing and use it in a bad way. And we're about to see it here in Mark chapter 2. Look at verse 23. One Sabbath day, as Jesus was walking through some grain fields, his disciples began breaking off heads of grain to eat. 
But the Pharisees said to Jesus, Look, why are they breaking the law by harvesting grain on the Sabbath? I mean, what is up with that? Right? And once again, the Pharisees are asking really a legitimate question, at least in their mind. But see, it wasn't unlawful to pick some heads of grain. You can go back in the Old Testament. You go back to Deuteronomy 23. The law says that if you're walking along in a vineyard and you want some grapes, that you can take a few grapes. That's okay. If you're walking through a grain field, it's okay. You can take a few kernels and eat it. That's not against the law. It's just against God's law to use a tool. That is, you can't go out with a shovel and dig up a whole garden to eat that day because that's the Sabbath, and you ought to do it on another time, right, other than the Sabbath. You see, the problem wasn't the taking it was the timing. Because in our story, what these disciples did, they did on the Sabbath. Right? And the disciples, they're not trying to be combative, but look, they're just trying to meet a legitimate need. They I mean they're poor, they walk everywhere they go, and they're hungry. But doing so violated the oral interpretations of what the rabbis considered to be work. But see, the Sabbath command simply says, do not work on the Sabbath. So, how do you define work? What qualifies as work? And so the rabbis, they came up with these pages and pages and pages of all these interpretations of what it meant, what the law actually meant when it said, you know, don't work on the Sabbath. All right? And by the way, they had Fitbits back then. Did y'all know that? That's hard to believe in it, but they did. Because the, the, they came up with the, the law that said, you can take so many steps in a day and it's okay. But after that number of steps, then you've broken the law. Well, something had to keep up with those steps. I think it was a Fitbit. Okay? And I'm going to tell you, 10,000 steps is work. It's work, folks. And they said, you know what? You can only do so much in the kitchen. And then after that, it becomes work. And that's breaking the law. And that's why men began doing the dishes. Right? Because women said, well, I'm going to cook, but i got to stop there because... You know, I'm okay up to them, but then you got to do the dish, right? It's biblical, folks. I know it hurts men, but it's biblical. And then you, you can help a sick person, but you can only help them so much because after that, then it's considered work. And so they had all these oral interpretations to build fences around the law to protect people from breaking the law on the Sabbath by working. And so that's what the disciples had actually done. They had climbed over one of those fences. And so keep in mind their question that they're really asking Jesus is this. If you're taking notes, write it down. They're asking Jesus, if you love God, then why don't you love his law? Because you're not keeping it. Why don't you stay on the right side of the fences that we've built to protect the law? And see, they weren't trying to protect the law as much as they were trying to protect themselves from what, in their mind, was going to be a very angry judge sitting up there waiting on them to mess up. So Jesus, when he responds to their what's up with that question, he doesn't just challenge their interpretation of the law. He's really challenging their view of the original intent of the law to begin with. And he does it so brilliantly because he tells them to go back to the actual scriptures they're referring to when they're asking Jesus this question. And he, Jesus says, I want you to reconsider your question. Your what's up with that question. I want you to think about it a little bit. Look at it, the next verse, verse 25. 
Jesus said to them, haven't you ever read in the scriptures what David did when he and his companions were hungry? He went into the house of God during the days when Abiathar was high priest and broke the law by eating the sacred loaves of bread that only the priests are allowed to eat. He also gave some to his companions. And I love this passage because it really makes you think about what's going on here. I mean, according to this, he's breaking the law, right? And by the way, when Jesus said, have you never read? Things got awkward because he knew he was talking to a group of guys that read this hundreds of times because they were teaching it, right? So maybe you haven't read it. Maybe you don't know what's going on here. So I'll tell you about the event. David as a very young man, had been anointed king, the next king of Israel by the prophet Samuel, right? But Saul was still the reigning king at time, and so this kind of threatened Saul. He was afraid David might try to take over before it was time, and so he set out to have David killed. And so in our story that we're looking at here and that's being referred to, David and his guys that are in the army, they're on the run and they've been that way for a long time. And so they're hungry and they haven't eaten in a long time. They arrive at a tabernacle where Abiathar serves at the priest and they're basically saying, David's saying, you know, my guys are hungry. You could help us out here. You could meet a real need that we have. And I'm paraphrasing here, but Abiathar basically says, well, you know what? We, we don't have a kitchen in the tabernacle. We're not a drive-through service here. I mean, we, we don't have anything but the consecrated bread here in the tabernacle. And you're saying, well, what's the consecrated bread? I don't know. I, I don't know what it was. All I know is in Leviticus 24, it says that every week on Sabbath day, they are to bake a new batch of consecrated bread. And they're to do so and offer it at the, offer, at, at the sacrifice place as a food offering to the Lord. And that only the priests that worked at that tabernacle were allowed to eat the bread that was left over. The common person just couldn't go up there and get whatever was left at the end of the sacrifice. All right, Only the priest could eat it. And so this law is very clear. There's nothing confusing about it. There's no gray area in it. It's black and white. Only the priest can eat the consecrated bread. And Abiathar says, David, we ain't got no food in the house. I know that's not good English, but anyway, we ain't got no food in the house except for the consecrated bread. And David said, well, that's fine. I'll take that. And that's what he did. He ate it and he gave it to his men to eat. And so there's no way that you can read this story without coming to the conclusion that technically David broke the law, all right? And yet nowhere in the Old Testament will you find where God reprimanded him for doing it. But you'll find a whole lot of other places where David did some wrong stuff and he got reprimanded pretty good for it, right? But in this case, God never said a word. So what, what's the point here? What's Jesus' point? Is it that it's not a big deal to obey the law? Some things you like, some things you don't. You just pick and choose the ones you want to keep, the ones that you want to get rid of. No, that's not Jesus' point at all. Jesus' point is not that obeying the law is no big deal. His point is that to properly obey the law, you've got to discern what the big deal is. Okay? And so in the next verse, verse 27, he says, Then Jesus said to them, The Sabbath was not to meet the needs of people, I'm sorry, the Sabbath was made to meet the needs of people and not people to meet the requirements of the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord even over the Sabbath. We're arguing here about what the big deal is and you think it's the Sabbath, but no, the big deal is man. 
So Jesus isn't claiming the right to break the law. He's claiming the right to properly interpret it because God's law is for man's benefit. Deuteronomy 6, 24, And the Lord our God commanded us to obey all these decrees and to fear him so he can continue to bless us and to preserve our lives as he has done to this day. And see, this was a paradigm shift for these guys that were hearing all this. And maybe it is for you too because maybe you've grown up believing that God has given this bunch of laws out there for us to restrict your life and to make your life the biggest possible burden that it could ever be to try to keep up because if you want to go to heaven someday you do have to keep all these laws nothing could be more wrong God has never asked us or commanded us to do anything except what was best for our best possible life the law's purpose was to bless people folks not stress people and this was especially true with the original intent of the Sabbath. You go back and read the first chapter of the Bible. On the sixth day, God made man. And then on the seventh day, he made what? The Sabbath. Right? The Sabbath was made for man, not the other way around. God didn't make the Sabbath day and go, oh man, this is so cool. I got to get somebody created so they can watch over it. No. He made man and said, I'm so thrilled with my creation. I'm going to give him a blessing. I'm going to give him what we're going to call the Sabbath. And that's what the Sabbath was designed to do, was to be a blessing to mankind. Because, see, back in that time, most people were poor, and they had to work very, very hard just to stay alive and to eat day by day by day. And so on the fourth command, the fourth command says, on the seventh day, I want you to rest. You work hard those other six days, you're going at it to just to stay alive. But on, on, on the Sabbath, I want man to rest. I want woman to rest. I want the children to rest. I want the slaves to rest. I even want all the animals to rest. Everybody and everything, rest. Refresh. Protect your health. But mostly, create some space in your life to refocus on God. Because you know why? Most Christians love Jesus. They just don't have time for him. See, the Sabbath was instituted to meet human need. And the best way to honor the Sabbath is to do something that would bless another person. And so Jesus comes along and says, my disciples aren't disrespecting the law. My disciples are actually reflecting the original intent of the law to begin with. Later, a lawyer would come up and ask Jesus, Jesus, man, we've got these thousands of bullet points about what we're supposed to do to keep the law. How, if you could sum up the law, what would you say? And Jesus says, well, love God and love your neighbor. That's what the law is trying to teach us to do. I don't know how you guys get messed it up so bad. And so Jesus did in that moment... He gave them their own what's up with that question. They asked, if you love God, then why don't you love his law? And Jesus basically asked them this. If you love God's law, then why don't you love your neighbor? You got all this stuff, but I'm going to make it simple. Why don't you just love your neighbor? And the point is not that Jesus is against religion. He's just against that pass by on the other side kind of religion. Remember the other lawyer came along and asked Jesus the same question, right? He got the same answer. Love God, love your neighbor. But this lawyer, <laughs> he was paid the extra money. He said, well, who's my neighbor? And then Jesus 
gave one of the most popular stories ever told about the guy that was walking down the road and he got mugged and was left for dead on the side of the road, right? Remember the story? And so these two religious men, they came walking along and they saw him, but they passed by him on the other side. It was a priest and a Levite. Both of them were very, very religious men. And they saw a real need and it wasn't even the Sabbath, okay? But they didn't stop to help him. Now, why did they not help him? Was it because they were jerks? I don't think so. I think they didn't stop and help him because they were very religious. <laughs> now, here's what I mean by that. Because they were very religious men, if they were to walk over and touch what they believed to be this guy who was already dead anyway, if they touched a dead man, it would defile them. It would make them unclean. And so therefore, they could not perform and carry out their religious duties if they had been defiled. So they said, therefore, in, honor to, in, in order to honor God, I can't go over and see if I can help that man. And now look, I'm paraphrasing here a little bit, but Jesus said, that's messed up. That's totally messed up because if you start believing that in, honor, in, in order to honor God, you've got to dishonor people, that, that's messed up. And I appreciate and affirm what CJ preached about last week. And he, yeah, he preached last week about finding people and sharing Jesus with people. And because this was such a huge paradigm shift for these religious folks, they, Jesus just kept having these encounters with them with all of their what's up with that questions about how Jesus actually practiced and lived out religion that looked so different from the way they had been doing it. Let me show you another one next chapter, Mark chapter 3, verse 1, another time. And I love this story. This is awesome. Another, it's really good. Y'all ready? All right, another time Jesus went into the synagogue. And a man with a shriveled hand was there. Some of them were looking for a reason to accuse Jesus. Now, isn't that something? Yeah, you catching it. That some people would come to church just to look for a reason to complain. Or they'd come to worship just to look for a reason to be offended. And there's only one reason that would upset you. And I'm going to let you figure it out. But they were looking for a reason to accuse Jesus. So they watched him closely to see if he would heal him on the Sabbath. <laughs> Jesus said to the man with the shriveled hand, stand up in front of everyone. Oh, yeah. You see it coming, don't you? See, Jesus is a great leader. And one thing that you'll find about consistently great leaders is they try to pull people together. They try to get everybody going in the same direction. They try to keep the peace, so to speak, right? But it is not true that every great leader will always avoid controversy. And so Jesus knew that by having this man step up in front of the church, it was going to create some controversy. And look, I'm not making light of disabilities. I wouldn't do that in any way. But this guy had lived all of his life with a shriveled hand. One more day wasn't going to make that much difference. Jesus could have easily said, come back tomorrow at 1030 and I'll give you a new hand. Because if I do it today, some of the folks up here in the church, they're going to get upset about it. Because they don't think you ought to be doing it on the Sabbath. And he knew they were there to accuse him. He knew what day it was. But he was quite willing to offend bad religion. 
So the next verse, I love it. Then Jesus asked them, God, he's so good. Which is lawful on the Sabbath? To do good or to do evil? To save life or kill? But they remained silent. You think? They were too embarrassed to speak or they were too prideful to repent. One or the other, they, they just kept their mouth shut. But even Jesus, even though he didn't hear any words, he knew what their heart was saying. And look at the next verse. It says, verse 5, he looked around at them in anger and deeply distressed at their stubborn hearts. And if that's you folks, you deeply upset Jesus. You need to think about that. And Jesus said to the man, stretch out your hand. And here's the moment that those that were looking for a problem in a situation found it. He stretched out his hand and it was completely restored. And I'm sitting here thinking, all right, that is so cool. That is so cool. But I'm a disciple. And Jesus is trying to teach me what I'm supposed to be doing here as a follower of him and he just broke the law. What's up with that, Jesus? I mean, the disciples are asking the question now. I've got to wonder if it didn't cross the disciples' mind. They're sitting around looking at each other going, man, Jesus, we missed a great opportunity here. We had a win-win and you blew it. I mean, if you just waited one more day, they wouldn't have been upset. You can always give the guy a new hand. It would have been a win-win. What's up with that? But I think Jesus would have said, it is never a win to withhold love. And it's never a win to withhold help to someone that needs it and you can give it to them. Because see, that's how Jesus did religion. He didn't reject religion, but he modeled how for us to do it well. Because religion is like the Sabbath. It's made for man. Supposed to bless your life, not stress it. Well, later, Jesus' brother James would say this in James 1.26. He said, if you claim to be religious, but you don't control your tongue, you're fooling yourself. And your religion is worthless. Pure and genuine religion in the sight of God the Father means caring for orphans and widows in their distress and refusing to let the world corrupt you. And look, I, I recognize there's a lot of bad religion out there. I know it exists. And I know it's turned a lot of people off. But the answer is not to avoid religion. It's to, for us to start doing it like Jesus did it. Let's start doing it right. So let me ask you two questions that I hope will help you with your own religion. Here's the first one. Write this down. Does your religion stress you? Because see, religion is not supposed to be a grind. It's supposed to be life-changing. It's supposed to bless you, not stress you. And look, this is a real struggle for some of us. And wherever you are in this, it really depends on whatever your view of God is. And if your primary view of God is that he's an angry judge that just can't wait to shoot you down every time you mess up, your religion's always going to stress you. And I know a lot of people that live their religion like that. Scared to death. Because when I ask them, I say, when God is looking at you, what do you see on his face? And almost every time they say, all I see is disappointment. I can't ever do enough. I can't ever do enough right things to be good enough for God. God is always just so disappointed in me. And so you know what? Their religion ends up exhausting them. 
with that view. That's not my view of God. I don't see an angry judge ready to punish. My view of God is he's a loving father ready to bless his children. And it made me think, and for those of you that have had the honor and the privilege of being a parent, you'll know, what, you'll know the feeling. You'll get it again when I describe this. But can you go back for a minute and remember? Can you remember when you walked into your child's room? And it was that moment just before they were about to wake up. And you just couldn't help but stand there and stare at them. And just soak in what a blessing. And how much joy they were bringing to your life. Well, see, when I wake up in the morning, that's how I think God looks at me. Maybe fix your hair a little bit or something, but I really think that's the way God looks at me. He wants to bless me because I'm his child. You know, if your religion is I got to do this and this and this and this and this and this so that God won't be mad at you, that's just going to be toxic to your soul, folks. You don't need that kind of religion. Did you know that Christianity is the only religion out there that doesn't lead with all the things that you've got to do to appease God, but it leads with how much God has done to show you how much he loves you? That's the kind of religion people want, folks. That's what people are looking for out there. We just need to show it to them. And that's what we do each week when we gather together, like we're doing this morning. We gather together to refocus, to remember that God delights in us. He delights in you. He delights in you, in you, in you, in you, in you, in you, listening at home. He delights in you. Those that are listening, driving down the road, he delights in you. And so if your religion is wearing you out, if it's exhausting you, if it's making you anxious, can I be gentle but also be a little firm and just tell you that you need to put Jesus back at the center of your religion? And look, don't, don't miss this. I'm not saying that Jesus isn't nearby you and your religion. I'm not saying that. I'm saying sometimes we replace Jesus with things that are about Jesus. And we often do this without realizing, but it's not the same. In your service to this church and your ministry at this church and your fellowship with others in this church and your personal sacrifice, that does not put Jesus at the center of your religion. It just doesn't. It just often makes you an exhausted Christian. Matthew eleven twenty eight. Then Jesus said, Come to me, all of you who are weary and carry heavy burdens, and I'll give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. Let me teach you, because I am humble and gentle at heart, and you'll find rest for your souls. See, he's not out to stress you. For my yoke is easy to bear, and the burden I give you is light. Jesus said, hey, come do life with me. Because, see, yoke is a walking together kind of instrument. Jesus says, let's do life together. I'll inform you. I'll teach you. I'll show you the things that you need to know about God and religion. And the things that I will show you and teach you, I promise you, they're not going to make your life harder. They're going to make your life better. But you've got to come and walk with me. So if your religion stresses you, it shouldn't. And then one last question to ask yourself. Does your religion bless others? 
James said in James 1.27, he says, Pure and genuine religion in the sight of God, the Father means this. And he goes on to talk about what that looks like. And he says it's saying nice things to people, not ugly things. And to say that you just have an abrasive personality, well, you know what? That just doesn't cut it. And you know what? If your words hurt people and offend people, then your religion, Jesus says, is worthless. So you might need to rethink it. It means being different from the world. It means your neighbor is blessed with your different ethic and your different kind of morality that goes against the prevailing culture and they see something in you that's different and they want to know what that is. And it's better. It means helping widows and orphans. In other words, it means helping people out. They're probably not going to be able to pay you back. I heard of a man who was angry at God for all the suffering in the world. He said, shoot, I could have done a lot better job than that with the world. And God said, well, that's what you're supposed to be doing. See, our religion should make our speech kinder in person and in a post, especially in a post. Our religion should make our compassion greater. It should make our wallets lighter. And it should make us quicker to respond when we see a need that we can meet. Now, I know, I do, I know, because this is what I've done my whole life. I know some religion is done very poorly. We'll just say it like it is. So perhaps religion has turned you off, and you're about to give up on religion, but you're here today. And I don't know why God put you here today. You're watching, sitting there at home, you're watching. You're giving up on religion, you're about to give up on it altogether, about to quit watching. Or you're going down the road listening to this podcast and you're about to give up on it. Before you do that, could I ask you to do one thing? Would you be fair? Would you be fair? And would you also look at all the people around us that are practicing pure and genuine religion because they are all around us and a lot of those people go to our church? I was looking through a couple of recent bulletins. And because of the generosity of so many people in this church, we were able to host a community outreach event last week where a Celebrate Recovery Ministry, we saw over around, right around a dozen people accept Christ for the very first time. Now, when's the last time any other event did that? And every week on Monday nights at 6.30, for 13 years, 13 years, think about that. People in this church have given of themselves and come up here on Monday nights at 6.30 to tell people in this community who have been discarded and thrown away that there's still hope in Jesus. And because of the generosity of this church, so many people have, they, they help feed hundreds of people every single month through the second Saturday food pantry. Every Wednesday we have people in this church, that they get up very early in the morning, they drive to Savannah or way away from Statesboro, they work hard all day, and then they break their neck to get back here, most of them without having time to even eat dinner so that they can teach our kids and our teenagers on Wednesday night about how real religion ought to look like so that our kids can have that example. Every summer... 
People in our church, they give up vacation time and money out of their own pocket to go be camp counselors for kids who couldn't go to camp if our folks didn't do that. And a lot of them do it during the other parts of the year too on special trips and occasions. Every month, people in this church, they practice pure and genuine religion by putting food in backpacks for kids who wouldn't eat much that day if it wasn't for our backpack buddies. Every Sunday, somebody goes out in our church bus and picks up people to bring them in for something we take for granted, and that is a car and transportation to get here to hear what religion sounds like and looks like. Every week, our friends at home ministry, they write cards of encouragement to those that are shut in and can't get out and come to it. Oh, they would love to come here in person, but they can't. They call them on the phone. They go by and visit with them and Tim and our deacons. They go and administer the Lord's Supper. Every Sunday, we have college-age students and we have senior adults and every age in between that are preparing life-changing lessons to teach our kids in blast and in Sunday school. Every month, our women's ministry, they give up their first Saturday of every month to do all kinds of various ministries. They're doing things. Our men are consistently doing all kinds of repairs and maintenance on shut-ins, houses, and on our own church building here all the time. Our men are out doing stuff. And just this week, five different people came and worked in the office so that Tracy, our admin, could have surgery and recover at home. They gave her their time to do that. And look, I'm just getting started. The list could go on and on and on. And anybody don't think we're doing anything here at this church need to get your thinker fixed. I'm about to start preaching up here in a minute. I'm just saying be fair. Be fair. All around us are people who have taken up the yoke of Jesus and they're doing religion like he did. Because good religion does a lot of good. So I want to close this story about Dan Curtis. I won't go long, but he grew up as a young boy in a time that not many of us got to experience, but we kind of heard about it from maybe our parents or our grandparents, called the Great Depression. It's a time when you didn't have much of anything, food, clothes, or money. So he was thrilled when his father came and said, I've saved up enough money to take you to the circus in town. So Dan was all excited. They went that day, the day they were going to the circus, and they got in line behind a family of ten. They were going to go to the circus. And you could tell by their clothing, they, they didn't have as much as their family did. But they were so excited. All these mom, dad, these eight little kids, all under the age of 12, Dan says. They were so excited, and the wife was smiling, looking at her husband like, man, you, you're my knight in shining armor. Take our family to the circus. Kids are so excited. So he asked for 10 tickets. And you could tell when his mouth dropped what he heard. He said, how, how much was that again? And Dan's father overheard the conversation. It was apparent that this guy did not have enough money for his whole family to go. So Dan says he remembers his father pulling a $20 bill out. It was probably the only $20 he had to his name. And he dropped it down at the shoe of that guy. And he tapped him on the shoulder and said, Sir, I think when you were looking for your money, this fell out of your pocket. And the man knew what Dan's father was doing. He shook his hand and said, Thank you so much. My family's going to be... So grateful that they're going to enjoy this. This means so much to my family. So they got the tickets and they went on into the circus. And Dan didn't get to go. But Dan will tell you, that as long as he lived under his father's roof, and he watched his dad read his Bible every day, 
and say a blessing over what meager food that they did have. And then every Sunday saying, it's time to get in the car, we're going to church. As long as that was going on, he never went without. And because of religion like that would produce a man like that, it's really hard to ask a person like that a what's up with that kind of question, isn't it? That kind of religion doesn't get those kind of questions. And so I want to encourage you today to be that person. Be that person. Find one thing that you can do this week to be a blessing to someone else that's in need. Could you do that? That's religion. Jesus style. And that's the kind Eastern Heights wants to build this church on. And the way he's going to do it is through us. Be that person. Would you join me in prayer? Heads are bowed and eyes are closed. Maybe all you have is religion. And you realize today you need Jesus. Would you invite him into your heart? Say, Jesus, I know I'm a sinner. I know I need you in my heart. I need you in my life. So Jesus, come save me right now. If you pray that prayer, Jesus will save you. If you're watching online, listening, say that prayer, Jesus will save you. Now, I'll be over here at the end of the service. I'll be glad to talk with you. If you have more questions, like to share that with me. If you prayed that prayer, I'd love for you to tell me about it. So God, thank you for Jesus. We thank you that he taught us how you really want us to live out religion. We thank you for how he modeled what you want from us. And we thank you that he has been so patient with us as we have tried to learn. Help us be more like Jesus, not just to honor him, but to bless our neighbor. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's all stand together as we sing, as we worship him, and go out and be the life-changing church God's called us to be. We hope you were encouraged by this message today. If you would like more details on our church, please visit us at ehbcstatesboro.org.